listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the virtual Skylight Books. We're so excited to be here tonight with Richard Lang uh, to celebrate his new novel, Rovers. Um, He's joined by Jonathan Ames. My name is Hallie. I am the assistant events manager at Skylight Books. Richard Lang is the author of the story collections Dead Boys and Sweet Nothing and the novels This Wicked World, Angel Baby, and The Smack. He is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship the International Association of Crime Writers Hammett Prize, a Crime Writers Association Dagger Award, and the Rosenthal Rosenthal Family Foundation Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He lives in Los Angeles. He will be joined in conversation by Jonathan Ames. Jonathan Ames is the author of I Pass Like Night, The Extra Man, What's Not to Love, My Less Than Secret Life, Wake Up, Sir, I Love You More Than You Know, The Alcoholic, The Double Life is Twice as Good, and most recently, You Were Never Really Here. He's the creator of two television series, Blunt Talk and Bored to Death, and has had two amateur boxing matches fighting as the Herring Wonder. Please join me in welcoming them to the stage. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Hallie, and uh, thank you, Richard. That bio wasn't quite up to date. Did they mention a man called Dole? uh, telepathically, it was mentioned. It, yeah, I didn't hear her mention that. His newest book is A Man Called Doll, which everybody should read. It's I right. have an old bio. Yeah, <laughs> All right. <laughs> old bio. Um, anyway, uh, well, we're here to discuss Rovers, uh, a book which I read several months ago and just loved it, just tore right through it. Um, the beautiful writing got into the minds of all these different characters, which I want to talk with you later. I empathized with all of them, felt for all of them, and and just loved it as a page turner, filled with also pathos. And and I I don't know, it's just a brilliant, fun, engaging, entertaining book. All right, so um, so what's going to happen tonight is Richard's going to read for about five minutes. And then, and then I'm going to ask him some questions about writing and specifically about Rover. So I will turn it over to Richard to read from his wonderful novel. Okay. I'm just going to read from the uh, first chapter. I think I'll read the dedication first. I dedicate all my books to my wife because she's my wife. And uh, so I'll read this one. Uh, it's for Kim Turner. There are darknesses in life. And there are lights, and you are one of the lights, the light of all lights. And strangely enough, I found that uh, in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. So it was 
that's why I read it because it's kind of relevant to this uh, to this book. Uh, just a little, uh, a bit about Rover is it's a it's a revenge thriller uh, set in the uh, in 1976, leading up to the bicentennial, and it's set in like the, the week before the bicentennial. And what sets it apart from maybe your average revenge thriller is that the main characters are uh, two brothers who hap happen to be what are called in the book rovers, which are creatures of a sort that have to drink blood. They are, can't go out at night. Uh, they will live forever unless they're killed in certain ways. So basically they're vampires. But uh, yeah, they're two brothers and one of them is mentally challenged. So the uh, the log line for the book or the elevator pitch or whatever you call it was uh, of mice and men with vampires. That's how it, it began. It, you know, it expanded into a lot more than that. But uh, just setting you up that it's these two brothers and they get in a lot of trouble and uh, things build to a climax and it ends in Fourth of July in Las Vegas on uh, New Year's New Year's Eve. So I'm going to just go ahead. I mean, I'm sorry, Fourth of July in Las Vegas. Uh, I'm going to just go ahead and read from the first chapter. Jesse dreams the old dream for the first time in months. He hasn't been sleeping much lately, and when he has, he hasn't dreamed. On bad days, he lies there for hours, tossing and turning. On good ones, he drops his lids and dies until the sun goes down. Today, though, one minute he's staring up at the water-stained ceiling of the motel room, listening to the maid argue with the manager out in the parking lot, listening to Edgar snore on the other bed, and the next, the dream. It reappears like a friend he hadn't known how much he missed until, hey, there he was again, the rascal. It's the only dream he dreams, so he's fond of it. It's the only time the world isn't just what it is. He's walking down a road, always the same road, a road he's traveled in his waking life, but not one he can place exactly. Somewhere near Barstow, maybe, somewhere outside Las Cruces. Scrubland, where the plants bristle with thorns and the hot wind never stops blowing, where train tracks slice across salt flats like ropey old scars and the air is so clear it's what's 10 miles away looks like it's two. He's walking alone on this road and how he knows it's a dream is it's daytime. He hasn't been outside during the day in more than 75 years. 75 years since he's felt the sun on his face, 75 years since he's lain under a tree and run his fingers over leaf shadows flitting across a patch of warm grass. 75 years since he squinted through his lashes to pin a cawing raven against the noon glare. For the past three quarters of a century, he's lived by night, in the ebon hours when monsters hunt and good folk keep to their home, their houses. Since he turned, every dawn's been a death sentence, every sunbeam a white-hot razor. That's why he's overjoyed whenever he dreams his only dream, when he finds himself walking that road under the blazing sun, under a few wisps of cloud unraveling across the sky. A bounding jackrabbit kicks up dust. A breeze brings a whiff of sage. He comes upon an empty pop can and gives it a kick. Light and warmth worm their way into the coldest, darkest thickets inside him. And if he never woke again, he'd be fine. This would be enough. Road, the sky, the sun, forever. Jesse. Jesse opens his eyes. The ceiling is dark. Night has come down. Jesse, what? I pissed myself. Jesse sits up. 
His brother Edgar is lying in the other bed in his own mess. Even Abby, Edgar's cat, has more sense than that. At least she was smart enough to jump down to the floor. Jesse exhales his disgust. He doesn't mean for Edgar to hear it, but hear it he does. I'm sorry, Edgar says, and starts to cry. It's all right, Jesse says. You've been doing better. Ten years have passed since Edgar last had trouble holding his water, and Jesse can't figure out why the problem has returned. He asked Edgar if he was scared or worried about anything, and Edgar said no. So he supposes it's simply another of his bad behaviors that'll keep coming back now and then, like the shoplifting and the lying and the wandering off, something he'll be training out of him again and again for all eternity. Can he really be that simple? You teach a dog a trick, a horse, and it remembers forever. So how come every few years he has to remind a grown man not to steal potato chips from the store? Could it be Ed Edgar's messing with him and secretly reveling in his frustration? Jesse makes him walk into the bathroom, take off his undershorts and put them in the sink. Edgar's not crying anymore and seems to have forgotten he ever was. Not too hot, he says, when Jesse turns on the shower. He's a big fella, bigger than Jesse, over six feet tall, round as a barrel and getting fatter every year. He'll always be 50 years old outside and 10 inside his head, a child bearing a man's shell. And Jesse will always have to look after him because he promised their mother he would. What else could he do? A dying woman's last wish. He unwraps the cake of soap that came with the room and hands it to Edgar. Edgar smells it, licks it, and makes a face. It's soap, not candy, Jesse says. Smells like candy, Edgar says. He sings while he showers his current favorite song about truck drivers who band together to outwit the highway patrol. He knows all the words, including the talking parts, and even cups a hand over his mouth to mimic the sound of a CB radio. Wash everywhere, Jesse yells over the singing. Under your arms, your ass. Ten four, good buddy. Jesse strips the sheets off the bed. The mattress is already so filthy that one more stain won't be noticed. He tosses the sheets onto the bathroom floor. We'll wash them in the shower later. Edgar stops singing. I'm hungry, he says. There's Pop-Tarts, Jesse says. I mean, really hungry. Okay, so that's where I'll, uh, I'll end it, and you can... Read the best rest of the book to find out what happens. Yeah. Well, thank you, Richard. It's yeah. so nice to uh, be back in the book. Uh, I don't know. I'm... You know, I, I, I hate reading it now because I, I, I never had an audio book before this one, and I listened to some of the audio book, and they, they do it so great that I'm like, eh, well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a, weak, a weak imitation of them, but uh, yeah, I do my best. Well, I thought you read well, and uh, you know, I did have just a funny idea just now. I don't know if you'd ever do it, but let's say you can give a live reading again. If there's a way you could project that, like hidden from your pocket, the audio book, and then move your mouth, it might. <laughs> I, believe me, I contemplated it, or just playing it, let like let it play behind me, you know, because yeah, you uh, could stand there holding the book while it plays. <laughs> I don't right. know, some weird meta. I hate hearing my own voice, you know, and the hate seeing my face. That's why these zooms are so are so strange, you know. I just try to try to keep focused on you, you, you handsome devil. Yeah. Well, anyway, one thing just before I ask the first question, just hearing yeah. the dream. I think one of the things I love about the book is that it well the, that felt like a metaphor for everyone with a recurring dream or the or this existential landscape. And then, or even the, you know, then when we come out of the dream, this 50-year-old body forever holding a 10-year-old boy, 
I don't know. It's just like what I love is that there's a resonance to your work that goes beyond like the surface labels of genre where these are human beings that I really fall in love with. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm, what's great is that I'm in a thriller with them and I love <laughs> them, you know? So uh, anyway. well, this was, this, this was a hard one to, you know, uh, I mean, I, in all my sort of work, uh, I try to work up sympathy for these sort of marginal characters and you know, people who, who, you know, uh, that other people would call losers or, or you know, things like that. But this book, and you know, I've, I've done that throughout the books. I've kind of considered it a, a, you know, just a touchstone in the work of, of trying to do that to build empathy for the reader for people they might not normally empathize with. And in this book, it was particularly hard because you know, most of the people in it are all killers. And, you know, you and you witness the people that you're following in the book and you're building an affinity for, you know, killing people. And so it, it, it was kind of a trick to try to, to pull that off. And I wasn't sure that, you know, it was gonna, it was gonna work that I would get people to care about these characters. But I think most people are, are, uh, are, you know, if not, if not, uh, if they don't love the characters, they at least understand their struggles. Like you said, they, they look at them as, as human beings in a, in, a, in a world rather than, you know, villains and heroes and, and things like that. There's a lot of gray areas. Yeah. Before I get to my first question, along that line of empathy, um, one of the things I loved in the book and people get into it, there's like a sort of biker gang of these rovers, vampires called the Fiends. And one of the things that's so great and it's such a rich world, you, uh, a Richard world, a Richard Lang world of these like backstories of these long lives and who these, because the fiends are all paired like either as friends or lovers. And, and so even though they were the fiends and the bad guys, I was also rooting for the, the, the one couple, uh, what was the name? Uh, Antonia and Elijah. I'm like, oh, they have such there's such romantics on some level. Like, <laughs> I was I was hoping that they could make it because they were slightly more rational, even if they were evil. Anyway, right. um, but I just wanted to walk the viewer a little bit who might be meeting you for the first time through you as a writer and every writer I feel begins as a reader, mm -hmm. you know, and anyone who's in the writing game loves books and they yeah. love to read. And so then like, you just feel the need to sort of make these things that you have loved yourself. So I mm -hmm. wanted to ask you, what were your childhood books? What were the first things that kind of got you into reading or opened up that reading maybe was more than just like a quarterback biography that you bought in the fourth grade? <laughs> I used to I, You know, as a, as a, as I, I started reading pretty early as a child and, you know, picked it up uh, quickly. And so, uh, by the time I was eight or, or nine, you know, I was reading Jules Verne. That was big for me. And uh, as, as a kid, I read a lot of science fiction. Uh, I read a, you know, a lot of horror books. Uh, I got into very into comic books about 10 years old. And so that was a was a big thing for me. But, I, you know, I also remember picking up whatever my mom had laying around the adult the adult paperbacks of the times, like uh, remember she had the Poseidon Adventure novelization. Well, actually, I think that was a novel before it was a novelization by Paul Gallico. And uh, so I read that and, you know, the, the Exorcist. And usually it was attached to movies because that was 
how you sort of learned titles back then uh, of, of adult books. Uh, I remember a shocking one was Last Tango in Paris. You know, I found that in the drawer and that was, you know, I was like 12 and that, that blew my mind. But uh, it got, you know, but then around, you know, 15, 16, 15, 14, I read, I uh, started reading Hemingway and Steinbeck and just because I'd be at the bookstore buying like the Doc Savage, you know, I was into the Doc Savage series and, you know, I read a lot of pulp and crap. And then uh, I, and I started, you know, I'd, I'd heard these names, Hemingway, Steinbeck, and I'd just pick up the books off the shelf and take them and read them. And pretty quickly uh, around that time, I, Carol, I remember picking up On the Road. Uh, I completely stopped reading science fiction and horror and only read, you know, real literature. I don't know what you call it. Uh, you know, mainstream literature, uh, non-genre. I, 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 I never went back to reading. I had, since then, I have not, not read, you know, barely any sci-fi, barely any horror and kept to, you know, the classics. Then when I went to college, you know, of course it was Raymond Carver was really big then. And so that was, a, you know, a huge influence, but yeah, it started out with a, with the, you know, sci just the sci-fi pulp books that, that were around, so. Yeah, well, along those lines, oh, just quickly, my own little Kerouac anecdote. Um, I was 17 years old, I think, taking a bus back from New York City, uh, from, from the Port Authority, because I would go into New York City for fencing lessons, like, like a holding Caulfield, but I was obsessed <laughs> with hitch hitchhiking. This was 1981, and there was a guy and we, this other kid and I, we would take the bus, you know, into the city, then the subway down to the West Village, take yeah. dancing lessons at NYU, then drink in the bars on Bleecker Street because they didn't card, <laughs> then get the bus back. And I had had this fantasies of running away and hitchhiking at that time in my life. And there was a guy with a rucksack in the back of the bus. And I said, even though he was on a bus, I said, do you hitchhike? He's like, yeah, sometimes, because he looked like a hippie. There were still hippies. Right. How do you do it? Like, I, I just didn't know. <laughs> and uh, he said, you want to know how to do it? Read this book, On the Road by Jack Kerouacki or something. So sure enough, <laughs> I went to the bookstore, found it, fell in love with the Beat Generation. But anyway. Yeah, that was a big intro. I mean, the Beat Generation, like, led to a lot of things for me, you know, a big, big intro to literature. Yeah. But so, I mean, for me, I know with as I've kind of gone into writing, trying to write more page turners or the kind of books that maybe you've been writing your whole career, even though they're extremely literary, who who are your role models now? Because like for me, you know, when I'm trying to write my books, I might be thinking of Richard Stark or lately mm -hmm. Ross McDonald. Like I'm sort of responding right. to these guys. Who are you responding to in your work, would you say, if you are? Uh I, I, I put like at the top, uh, when I first had to write a novel, I, I sold a, I had a book of short stories that I was trying to sell. And uh, a, a guy found one of my stories in a literary magazine, an agent, and or he was, actually he was starting an agency and he wanted me to be his first client. And he uh, found a story and he said, hey, do you have enough of these for a collection? And I'd been publishing stories in these magazines for 10 12 years and you know getting paid in copies and whatever and he said i can get you a contract i think but you have to have a novel to do that because nobody will buy a book of short stories alone mm -hmm. so 
I had to write a novel. And uh, I wasn't a, a huge crime fan, you know, by any means. I mean, I, I read crime, but I did, I did really love Elmore Leonard, you know, and I'd read almost everything by him, but I, I, I almost didn't think of that as crime. I just thought of it as literature. I don't know. And then, uh, so I definitely, when I sat down to write, I had that in mind. I had, uh, I think Richard Price, uh, you know, I'd read Clockers and I, I kind of knew the level that I wanted to try to, to shoot for. I mean, I don't know if I've ever attained it, but those were the things I was going for. And, and uh, a Robert Stone book called Dog Soldiers, you know, th th those were the things that I did. So they, uh, I don't know if we were talking about this the, the time we had drinks, but uh, I, Robert Stone, uh, I, I reread re Dog Soldiers recently and I see that uh, it, well, he, he writes what are called convergence narratives, I think, uh, where you have these four stories happening and then they're all they're all moving into where they come together. You, you, you yeah. wonder, they seem separate, but then they come together. And yeah. I noticed, I think every one of my books has had a convergence narrative. I don't know if I got that from him, but I definitely read Dog Soldiers before that, uh, before doing those. But yeah, I, I just needed... I needed a, a genre. I needed a hook to hang a novel on because I'd only written short stories. So I, I didn't even know if I could write a novel. I, I, had, I, had, I never thought that would be a possibility. I didn't think, I just thought I'd, I mean, I was 42 years old and I thought I'll just be writing these short stories in these little magazines. And you know, that's cool. It's, I can brag at parties and, and whatnot because none of my other friends write. So if I publish in these magazines, I, you know, yeah. I still seem cool to them. So, uh, but because I needed to, I needed to write a novel. I I said, well, I know the structure of someone, you know, the the, the murder mystery investigation structure of a someone dies at the beginning and you find out at the end, and a guy is going along, you know, a path of finding out what happened. And I said, that's something that I can anchor this on, and it'll keep me moving because my stories don't short stories don't really move. They're just sort of a collection of scenes or incidents. Or moments that somehow I, I tie them together in the end, but for a book, I wanted to I wanted to keep the reader moving. I like books, you know. Maybe when I was younger, I had a more art, uh, you know, artful taste or like more uh, uh, open taste. But you know, I could read a book then, you know, uh, a French novel that takes place all in a during a dinner in one room, and you know, be a, an existential discussion and. And, and I, you know, I, I could do that, but when I sat down to write, I actually want, I, I needed to make a living doing it too. So I knew I wanted to get readers that would, something that would make readers read. And I figured the crime thing would be it. So I didn't intend to be a crime writer, but I fell into it and uh, it, it happened. And then, you know, here I go and screw it up by uh, writing a horror novel, which was a big, a big swerve. Well, this was going to be a later question. I wanted, to, but I'll ask it now. What do you think of these labels, crime writer or mystery writer or horror or, you, you know, I mean, what do you make? What are they? What are they calling you now? I mean, uh, are you now a crime writer because you wrote the the doll and and the, I, I guess the other one that you were never really here's kind of crimey, you know? I mean, uh, I mean, is that now? I mean, it's weird. You get a designation and. It's it's strange to have that laid on you. And for me, I'm just I just sit down to write about. It. I get an idea, and you know, it 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 
it just the last of the last the first three all tended towards crime and this one is basically i guess you could call it a, a, a crime novel it has a crime structure it's a revenge thriller thing but uh you know i, I don't i don't care what they what they call me whatever works for them i'm not one of those guys that's going to fight it like hey i'm not a crime writer but because they have to have somewhere to put you on the shelves and uh the crime community is very loyal and if you can if you can get them behind you then they'll read they'll read your other books you know they'll go back and read the short stories and so whatever whatever the uh the very smart people at the publishing company think uh will sell books i'm all for i mean i'm just i'm gonna i write the books and i turn them in and i don't consult with them beforehand and they have no idea what's coming across the transom i mean i i'll say like well i think i'm the worst thing I said was, well, I think I'm going to write another book of short stories after I'd written two novels. And I could tell they, I could, even though it was over the phone, I could tell they'd thrown their hands up in the air and just said, no, please don't do that. Because, you know, I like writing short stories. and Everybody tells me how much they love short stories, but nobody buys the books. So, uh, but, you know, I had the stories done and I wanted to do it. So I did it. Same kind of thing with this. You know, they, I'm, had a nice little role going as a crime writer. And then I go and say, I'm going to write this, you know, of mice and men meet uh, with vampires. And once again, I could tell it was not, you know, not quite what they wanted, but they supported me. And, uh, you know, I, I, it, it's worked so far. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think much about the labels myself. I, I mean, I've had, I romanticized in my mind the crime writer, the pulp writer, you know, the Jim Thompsons, these guys that just cranked out so many books and and were sometimes obscure, but I just was like, no, you know, love this stuff. I mean, it's not Richard Powers um, or, yeah. you know, or Calvino or something, but I was just right. like going nuts over this stuff. But you, you made me think of there was this German writer I read 20 or 30 years ago when you said like a, a French novel all at one dinner, it was a wonderful, very uh, experimental German writer. And there was one book that was all one paragraph. And I think it was just a man sitting in front of a fire, almost like a, a German Nicholson Baker. Uh, right. Loving that book. It was, and then another one didn't work as well, but it, it was so in, like you were just in this guy's mind sitting in a chair in front of a fireplace. And you know, some, some people can really do it well, like Beckett. Yeah. You can read, I mean, Beckett does things where it's just a guy sitting and, and, and talking, you know, and, uh, you know, he, he can do it well. But like I said, I, 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 I wanted to sell, I wanted to at least try to sell books, you know, and I figured on my first try, I better, I better go with something pretty, you know, who knows, by the end, I may be writing books of a guy sitting in a room, uh, you know, <laughs> just thinking to himself, I might work up to that. It might just take me time. I'm still I'm still learning to write novels. So uh, who knows where I'm going to go? Yeah, well, the the books reflect a guy just sitting in a room, because what <laughs> we're reading is the movie that plays in your head with these characters. And then then we get to see the dream that was in your mind that you put down into sentences and then we have that dream um so in a sense we, you are writing about a guy sitting in that it's true i mean meta meta you know i mean if you want to you know with the i'll say that uh, when people say uh oh uh do you identify with your characters i say well i made them like you know they're all me you know and i always relate it back to someone once told me like when you have a dream 
you that's not your mother in the dream and that's not your dad or your sister that's you making your mother and your dad and your sister it's not the actual person itself so same thing when you're writing a book the the worst villain is somehow coming from inside me and i don't i i tend to try to not make the villains completely you know villainy like uh, you know I, I try to add add human stuff and so their thoughts are my thoughts so i guess you know you that could you could get into that and uh, how, how how you know how are you able to get into these people's minds but you know every thought they've had i've had because i wrote it down there so it's a I, you know, I understand what you're saying about that. Um, well, I wanted to ask you, this is sort of a, a structure thing because you talked about, you know, the, the convergence theory of your novels and that, you know, different writers employ. Uh, employ. And so in, in Rovers, you have the Jesse chapters, which are in the third person kind yes. of omniscient. He's or, the, he's the, 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 really the younger brother but he's the the brother who's who's taking care of things yeah yeah and then we have edgar's chapter you know who's the you know the lenny Mentally of the challenge guy. Yeah. yeah and he's like and they're the told world. yeah they're told through his mind which i'm i'm really glad that i hit on that I, that wasn't the intention in the beginning you know it's just yeah. i sat down and started doing it and uh you know, it draws back on the Benji Thompson from Sound and the Fury, and and there have been other examples where they've narrated from a inside a mentally challenged person's head. But this guy actually carries a lot. He has to sometimes describe plot, but mainly what it was great for was because if you only saw him from outside, it would just be this big mentally challenged guy. And by by used by having those chapters where he's talking you get to find out that he has this rich inner life and it actually has emotions. And you, you, yeah. you know, I was able to start steering things in the direction I wanted it to go, you know, about his character by using that. And it just, I think it just made the character richer and added a lot more to it and made him a, made him a huge, a big part of the book, bigger than he would have been if he would have just been the mentally challenged brother that the other guy had to deal with. So that was a, a, a happy, uh, a, happy piece of uh, happenstance that uh, that I that I figured that out pretty early on. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you because you have those two sections, then yeah. you have the diary sections of the Charles character, and then mm -hmm. you have another third person where we're following uh, the fiends. So, mm -hmm. and yet the story, you know, because it is a thriller and a page turner is moving like this. We're moving towards this moment where of course they all converge. Right. So did you write, like, did you write all the Charles diaries as one piece or were you going from Charles into third per Like, cause that's, cause for me trying to, I, in any book I've written in any kind of story, I'm very linear oriented for the most mm -hmm. part. Like I start at the beginning and I move towards the end. There's something I want to get to and right. I move the reader through time. Even when I would write essays, I was very clear. Like mm -hmm. I would even put like timestamps for each section because huh. I feel linearity moving through time Keeps people moving right it draws the reader yep. forward and so this obviously is moving through time yet you had three and four different timelines in a sense so i just sat i sat down and started right at the beginning and then like i said i 
I wrote the first Jesse chapter and then I, then I decided, wait, I'm going to do Edgar in first person. So I just wrote that one and it just went through that. That was the most difficult challenge on this book uh, was the, the structure because uh, it's, it's those four narrators and they're always in the same order. Mm-hmm. I never changed up the order once. So there's always going to be an, ed- the first one will always be jet. There's, there's eight sections of four chapters each. And the first one is always uh, Jesse, Edgar, mm-hmm. Charles, the diary, and then the fiends. Yeah. And it got really difficult to try to work. How am I going to work the story and who's seen what and what happens yeah. through whose eyes in order to keep that structure. And I, I had it perfect to the end, like all the way to the end until my wife read the book. I mean, and it was, I mean, it was, that was a lot. I mean, that was probably, like I said, it was the hardest part of the book was figuring out how it was kind of like in poetry when you're trying to rhyme, you know, an end jam and then you bring it down here and you're trying to count it, figure it out. And uh, then my wife reads it and she says, you know, that's not, it originally ended with uh, the two vampires in Italy. And uh, they, she said, that's not really the ending. You know, the, here's the ending. She went back to an earlier chapter and said, this is, this is what has to happen. And so I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. You fucked up all my work because I now have to pull out this one little section and put it at the end and it ruins my perfect symmetry I created. But she was absolutely right. I mean, it, it, it made the book. I, you know, I'm a believer in strong endings because I think, you know, the last thing people read is, is you know, going to stick with them and that's what they'll walk away from a story or a, a book with. So I always try to, to build up to something really good. I always notice Elmore Leonard's endings are like, not like that. They're just like, and then he drove off, you know, like he, he always ends his book like that. I still can't get away from these, you know, operatic crescendos. Cause I think that's, you know, they'll remember that as a close book. They might've hated, you know, something earlier in the book, but that ending, if I can get them on that, then, you know, they'll at least leave the book feeling good. So in this case, I have to thank my wife for making that possible. So, um, and as you were describing it, um, I, I tried once, and it's a book I put in the drawer at the moment, a convergence thing, because that's also something one of my heroes, Richard Stark, does a lot in the Parker books. Yep. And you always love it, like when you see Parker from this other character's perspective, or in your book, now we see Jesse from Edgar's perspective, mm-hmm. or we see the fiends from Jesse's perspective right. and so on. Uh, it's always fun when like suddenly we're out of their thing and then we see them through another eye. But yeah. um, so, and then as you were describing that, I was like, oh, cause you know, maybe if I ever try a convergence thing, I like, cause it, structure is helpful, you know? And so yeah, oh, like, for me, definitely. Like, it's like, you know, Jesse, Edgar, Charles, fiends, Jesse, Edgar, Charles, fiends. Right. And like you're able to then roll the story forward. Charles will fill in this bit. Boom, mm-hmm. we're moving forward. We're, the the reader's getting to the point of convergence. Exactly. Um, but did, so did you break it for the ending? Was it like, I, I didn't, I don't know that. Yeah, I, it breaks. Because. What is it, uh, Jesse? Or? Jesse comes back. That's the last half of Jesse's last chapter got pulled out and put at the very end. So, you know, theoretically, there should then be an Edgar chapter, a Charles chapter, and a uh fiends chapter but it originally ended with a fiends chapter and then my wife made me pull out part of that uh the jesse chapter and put that at the end and you know the end i'm not going to say it but right uh, 
But it feels but, like you could do that in a sense, because at the end, you do like a twist, like a gymnast, and right. come back to Jesse. I'm still yeah. not clear. What should have been the ending? The Fiends? The ending was the, the last Fiends chapter. It was the two vampires in Italy. I see. The couple okay. that you like. Okay. All right. Um, that was how. That's how it ended. Yeah, but 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 what's cool, Jesse? Then is the beginning always. So it. Well, ends see, Ben, I, dude, I didn't even think of that mirroring. Like, oh shit! Like the mirroring yeah. of the dream at the beginning. I, you know, I'm an yeah, idiot when I'm. You know, it's all. Yeah, it's all. I'm an idiot when I'm writing this stuff. I don't even see what's there in front of me that I've done. You know, sometimes. I should. I never let anybody read my stuff before I give it to my agent, except my wife. She she gets to read it, and just some some. I'm starting to think maybe I should let someone else. Actually, I let two people read this book before in manuscript, but I told them they couldn't say a word to me about it. So I don't know what use that was to me because I didn't want them to say anything that would that well, would influence me. Maybe if you knew if they absolutely hated it, they would like. It'd be like a you know fire alarm. They would break the thing and be like, Richard, no, no, or or maybe secretly your own. You know what? But I'm not going to trust their opinion. You know that's the shit. That's the thing about it. I'm going to be like that guy's so weird. I bet they he doesn't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just I, I had this urge to have someone read it, and uh, I I gave it out. I, you know, it's the first time I've ever done that. And uh, but I, like I said, I didn't get anything out of it because I didn't. I I wouldn't let them talk to me about it at all until. I turned in the manuscript and it was, you know, bought and it was ready to go. I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't let him say anything. So, yeah. well, it sounds like, you're but like, but, but if I could get good suggestions, like my wife gave me, maybe the books would be a hundred times better. And I don't, you know, I just don't know. Oh, it's a really good book. I, whatever you did, you did right. And, you know, and look, if you have one good reader in the case of your wife, you know, then, and then, then the next phase, you have the editor and the agent. Sounds yeah. like your, your system's working well. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Um, oh, and then I guess this will be maybe my last question um, before we open it up to the audience. And it's somewhat re related to like these four sections again, because like I said, two are third person, mm -hmm. two are kind of first person because like one's a diary. And then one which is a, you know which is a callback that's an homage to Dracula the book uh -huh. because it was an epistolary novel it was all letters cool. diaries uh transcriptions of wire recordings i guess at the turn of the century or whatever the late 1800s they had wire recorders mm -hmm. so there are these transcriptions or newspaper articles so i kind of when i once again, like I wasn't really thinking that until I sat down and started doing it. I go, hey, that, that, you know, they had letters in Dracula. So this fits, it fits perfectly into the, into the thing. Yeah. It's almost like, um, it's almost like, I don't know if you were at an altar, you know, you're like, here's a coin. Like you're, you know what I mean? Like, cause you're <laughs> at the altar of Dracula and like, just even that illusion, if no one picks it up or if they do right. pick it up, you're like sort of, uh, Thing, honor to right. to this you know this and i gave him you know and, and the uh the dedication was from right. dracula too which so right. I, like i was able to even though i'm not like a horror fan i did read dracula when i was a kid and was like fairly obsessed with it uh the, the book but uh i was happy that i was able to figure out you know just little ways to do that yeah so my question then uh is do you have 
a preference, third person, first person? Like, do you, because you seem extremely adept at them all, like your short stories. I think the book I have felt like maybe it might have been all first person. If it's uh, the first one, it's all first person. Yeah. Yeah. And then this wicked world, I gave it to my dad, so I couldn't check it, but I feel it's third. Like third. third. Yeah. And because you're all the novels, all the novels have been third. Uh -huh. For some reason that, you know, seemed to, well, except for this one, which has some sections, but it just seemed when I sat down to write novels that worked better for me, I would like to try it. I mean, I always, I, I obviously like to write first person because all my early work was, was first person yeah. stuff. And, and uh, I've always been striving though, to find this perfect third person that is almost first person, you know, like there's a, it's a, it's a, thing that I've been looking for and I think I can't I'm trying to think of writers I know who can do it where you're so invested in the narrator's perspective that it almost reads as 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 first person yet you can still do things like uh description which you know I, I don't really like doing that in first person because I don't think of someone sitting down I mean I'd have to do a different kind of narrator but my narrators are usually pretty uh inarticulate and so uh uh, to, to have them sit down and say if they took a trip to the Grand Canyon and describe the Grand Canyon, they couldn't, you couldn't, I couldn't do that in a first person. I'd have to figure out some way. So that's why I've always been looking for this way to combine first and third in the, the thing. And I'm getting closer and closer to it. I remember I was trying it in college and I cursed in, in the third person while talking about a character as if the, the, the character was, the character, it wasn't the character's voice. It was the, the, third person narrator cursing and I remember I got kind of chided by by my writing teacher like no nah, you can't really do that in third person you know like that's not yeah. that that doesn't work that way you're breaking some rule or something but I've since gone on to do it a bunch of times I mean I, in in the, in the course of looking for this this certain voice but yeah I would love to write first person I mean, you know somewhere I mean truthfully those chapters were the easiest chapters to write of like Edgar were the easiest chapters to write because they were in first person. I could just sort of let go. I always feel I'm much more controlled in third, but you know, like I said, once again, I'm trying to write these novels that keep moving and don't bog down. And it seems like third person works best to keep things pumping along. Yeah. Well in the third, you know, you're kind of like a God, but the thing mm -hmm. is that I do feel that with your third person, like, with This Wicked World, a novel I recommend of Richard's, those of you who haven't read it, it's just, it just was my introduction to you. Um, and I think I just happened to go in Skylight Books and <laughs> saw it on the shelf and I was just like, oh, this looks interesting. And you know, and then I came and heard you read at Skylight, I think from The Smack or Smack, um, yeah, The Smack. And um, anyway, but like with This Wicked World, you were so close to the bartender, you mm. know, or so in his head or in the opening, which was this brilliant opening about <clears throat> the young man, I don't want to give things away, who is going to be the center of the mystery that you really the do. Death scene. Yeah, I mean, that was like an incredible, I don't know, opening five or 10 pages of a novel. I remember just really being blown away by it as this kind of like prologue you know, it was very cinematic in a sense mm -hmm. of like, because we're never going to see this character again, mm -hmm. but he, but you so empathize with his struggle and his suffering that then 
he becomes like the raison d'etre right. for the mystery that follows because we've been, we so care about what happened to him in that beginning that we do want justice for him. Right. Um, and yeah, so, so I see, I, you can see then, you know, what I'm trying to do is get super close in on the characters, you know, yeah. in that third person where you almost think it's, you, all, you almost forget it's third. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think you achieved that. I, for me, I, I've only written the one book in the third person. You were never really here because uh -huh. I was always scared of it. Uh, that thing of certain rules where you are w breaking, you know, the voice or having. Yeah. You know, but uh, it's it can be confusing. Um, I somehow pulled it off in there, but then with a man named Dahl, I kind of reverted back to first person, which I had always used uh for essays and novels and anyway but let's and it works well it works it works well in uh the detective you know detective genre thing i mean that's uh the standard voice and yeah. you know you create such a good character in that in that pi doll that uh that uh i think it's good that you keep it in first person because he's super unique and the observations seem like they need to be first person and not third person. They need to be, because it's his, it's his voice you're hearing. I mean, and his particular things like, you know, as we talk, we didn't get a chance, we'll talk dogs later, but. Yeah, uh, one of the things audience out there, I don't know how many people are out there, but is that Richard and I both have a dog, love dogs, and we thought, oh God, if we totally stall out, <laughs> we can just go into like dog love. Yeah, how much we love dogs. I could do that for hours. <laughs> well, well, Hallie, do you want to tell Richard some of the questions that are coming in? It looks like there's four so far. Yeah, um, my questions are now all about, I just want to hear you talk about dogs. So, um, <laughs> But we have a question from Josh who says, I love the voice of this novel. It's so different from your other books. It sounds like someone from the Midwest or Southwest from the 70s not modern at all, which is great. Was it hard to capture that voice of the 70s era? Yeah, it. Uh, I actually tried for each, like for the Jesse chapters, I tried to do this thing where they used uh, archaic Lang, him and his brothers, sort of when they talked, because they'd been around since the late uh, 1800s, they use a combination of modern language and old language. So I a lot of old terms for things like they call uh, their suitcases a grip, you know, and then that by that was nobody was saying that in the 70s, but it's like a 30s or 40s where they could have used and they, they speak in a, in a, a they also have a lot of southern elements to their speech because they're from uh, West Virginia. So they uh, have I put that in, but working with the language on those on their two chapters was uh was was interesting you just have to be careful you know you just have to have to always keep keep in mind where it's set and make sure that you're not you know having people say things that nobody i, I hate books when i read them and it's supposed to be the 70s and someone says something that you know that nobody was saying in the 70s it always bothers me and uh, you know i'm a i'm a researcher at heart that's what i i mean i it's one of the big things about the books that I love is doing the research. And like in this book was so was hard uh, in research because it actually takes place over five real days. So one example 
I, I wanted to write this scene in the desert at night and have the moon. I had the moon in it and blah, blah, blah. And then I said, oh, you know what? I better go check the moon on June 27th, 1976. And I got the moon thing on the computer and looked it up. And sure enough, over the whole course of the novel, the moon goes from being a sliver to no moon to another to the sliver on the other side. So in a whole book at night, uh, you know, that takes place at night, I couldn't use the moon to really light anything. But, you know, people said, oh, you can get away with that. But I'm like, nah, you know, someone's going to come up to me and I'm going to be so bummed when they say, you know, the moon wasn't full on that night. So that's just a, a, an aside. Sorry. That's cool. Um, how else did you do research? This is my question. It's, it's uh, mostly the, you know, I used the internet. Uh, Phoenix, I'd never been to Phoenix. I mean, a lot of the book takes place in Phoenix. Uh, I've been to Tucson. And I grew up in Bakersfield, which is kind of Phoenixy, but I just went and heavily went into old Phoenix sites and history of Phoenix's downtown and found all these things. And, uh, you know, you can find uh, amazing things on the, in the internet. I had to do, uh, I, the Edgar, the mentally challenged brother is obsessed with cartoon hosts, which, uh, I, probably they're not around anymore, but when I was a kid, you had every town had like Stockton had Captain Delta and he dressed up like a sea captain and he sat in a little uh, paddle wheel, fake paddle wheel boat. And he introduced the Popeye cartoons and uh, the Three Stooges shorts. And he also did ads for the local toy store or whatever, you know, come down and meet Captain Delta at the toy store. But uh, he, uh, but so I did research online. I ended up, that was great. Cause when I'm doing research, I don't have to write. So I got to look at old video of, you know, I it, it, I didn't need it, but once I went down the rabbit hole, I was watching, you know, videos of these cartoon hosts in all the cities in the 60s and the 70s and kind of going into their lives. There's a whole book to be written about that. Believe me, you know, Pinky Lee's life story would be would be a great would be a great novel uh, in itself. This vaudevillian who has fallen into hosting a, a, a TV kid show. But uh but yeah, then the research is a is a big element, and it's mostly it's mostly online. But I normally also never write about somewhere I haven't haven't visited. So Phoenix, I mean, I've been in Vegas a million times. I even was there in the '70s when I'd go with my parents, and I have vague memories of that. Uh, most of the other places in the book, Reno is in the book. I've been there, Portland. So I, I like to write about places I've been. I like to at least put my feet there and like look around a little and. I, I don't know. I just feel better about it. It might not really help, but for me, it just feels more more authentic when I can do that. So, uh, I you know, as, like I said, as much I set all my other books in my neighborhood. So, you know, all the crime books were all set, you know, MacArthur Park, which is you know two miles over here, or in Hollywood, which is two miles over here. So, uh, you know, I'm, that made it easy to do the research on those. Thank you. Um, another question from Lefty, who says, I love the cover of Rovers. It really grabs your attention. Is there a story behind how it was created or picked? Uh, yeah. Do you know me, Lefty? Have you heard me bitch about this before? But, uh, it, I, there was an original cover that they sent and it looked like the, I, I won't show it cause I don't want to embarrass, uh, the, 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 artist but and it was it's terrible it was like it was 
purple and it, it looked like a, the cover of a comic book and it had the bikers riding through the night and like it was a drawing and it, it it was it was awful and so i just wrote back and said no you know i mean luckily they're they're pretty cool about that i've had disputes about other covers with them and uh, always it seems like when they come back with the second effort it's it's really good and in this case i think they did an outstanding job i sent them a ton of I sent them like the Nashville poster. Uh, I went through and looked at other movie posters that had used the American flag thing. I think Joe, maybe the movie Joe with Peter Boyle, like these movies that had that used the American flag as a theme. I sent them biker uh, patches and all kinds of, I mean, tons of inspiration stuff. And they came back with a silly one. But then the second time they actually hit it and they kind of got what I wanted. This red, white, and blue. Yeah, thanks. Uh, the red, white, and blue theme, and now it kind of thrills me to see those three characters there. You know, I'm like, oh, that's that's really cool. They're actually like pictured on the cover. So yeah, they did a great job. Yeah, I love the like printing press quality of it too. Yeah, um, yeah, that's really cool. Um, this question is anonymous, and they say, is there a film adaptation in the works? Uh, thank you for asking. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, uh, right now, as, as we speak, they're hammering out this, a TV deal for a series. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, that, that I've had, and Jonathan can attest to this, that the, you get deals all the time and they don't, they don't, they don't often don't pan out. But, you know, I have high hopes for this one. I think it's a, it's a, it's a rich world that could, that could go a lot of different ways. I got a, email from a producer the other day who called it the walking dead of vampire books. He goes, you got, you could franchise, you could have so many different, you know, shows come off this book. And I thought that's great. You know, that, you know, he also said prepare to be very rich. And I said, that's great. So unfortunately he's not the one, he's not the one doing the deal. So, but it's, he's right. There is a lot of possibility to go a lot of different ways with the, with, with this kind of world that's created here. There's also like a Highlander quality because you could like see things from the past and yeah. you know what I mean? So it's like kind of fun that way. Yeah, you, you could know? do a whole season set in the 1890s or, you know, whenever you want it. So. Yeah, or it's like Wolverine in the Marvel world, like when you mm -hmm. see him like running in the World War One trench or something. Yep, yep. And the characters could just have like their own kind of spin-off shows. Too. Yeah. Um... We have time for one more question. This one is from Tina, who says, hey, Richard, I heard there would be an audiobook version. Did you get to pick the reader? Uh, no, I did not. It's, you know, uh, it was an interesting story about that. I'd never had an audiobook before, so I was super excited when they came to me uh, with the, uh, with the, you know, they told me that it was going to happen. They sent me the reader, and, you know, he's, he was good, you know, it was just a, uh, sound like an older white guy but then i wrote them and said uh or, you know got in touch and said but you know there's all these chapters that are narrated uh, by a black it's a black man's diary the father that's looking charles who's looking for his son whose diary entries are about a quarter of the book is a black guy and i was like i don't i don't know how that is gonna work maybe you know we should think rethink that a little bit and they're like oh 
which makes me think they probably didn't even read the whole book. They just read the first two chapters and, you know, got this going. But uh, they ended up getting a, a really good uh, African-American actor to do the Charles, uh, the Charles diary entries. And so uh, it, made, it, made the, it made the audio book even better to have these two narrators going back and forth. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, any final questions or thoughts before we head to the signing? No, I got to get dressed, put on pants and get over there, don't I? You're not I wearing pants? pants this again. Is, what is this? <laughs> Network news? It's a nightmare. <laughs> um, well, I want to thank you both so much for being here. Um, for writing rovers and jonathan for your questions um thank you jonathan for doing this oh my yeah. pleasure i love the book love all your books i mean I, I i think i have one or two i haven't read but anyone out there find richard's stuff it's a beautiful blend of great storytelling and, and just very uh beautiful prose and yeah i just love the books and the pace thanks thank you and um, thank you to everyone who's here in the audience. Um, we hope to see you later. If not, you can order a signed copy of Rovers um, right here on the internet. Uh, yeah, and thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.